wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we call Max. Welcome to the now playing Mad Max movie retrospective series. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Hosted by Jacob. I've seen the style before. Terminal psychotic. Stuart. I'm a fuel injected suicide machine. And Arnie. A burnt out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons in his past. This podcast will contain detailed movie spoilers and harsh language. You! You can run, but you can't hide! Listener discretion is advised. But this ain't one body's tell. It's the tell of us all. And you've got to listen it and remember. Because what you hear today, you've got to tell the newborn tomorrow. Today we're discussing Mad Max, Fury Road, starring Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, Nicholas Holt, Hugh Keysburn, Rosie Huntington-Whitley, Riley Q, Zoe Kravitz, Abby Lee, directed by George Miller. My name is Arnie. My world is podcasting and movies. Stuart in LA? I live, I die, I live again to podcast in Valhalla. This is Jacob. Mad Max Fury Road been so long for Max, and this film... This film took so long to come out. I came in with the absolute lowest of expectations, honestly. We did this retrospective. I was happy to talk The Road Warrior. I was happy to revisit Thunderdome. But come on. This thing had troubled production all over it, right? I mean, it was shot over three years ago, spent a whole lot of time in editing and reshoots, The director, George Miller, said it was going to be a two-parter filmed at once and then one film. I know that, Stuart, you were moving this thing around our schedule like a night on a chessboard. We're like, is it one movie? Is it two movies? What the fuck is it? That's never a good sign, right? No, I mean, I'm the fan of this series, and I was nervous. Until the trailer came out, I was nervous. I mean, this has been in production since 1998 is when they started getting everything ready, started storyboarding and doing the script. And then, yeah, stories that they almost had to reshoot the entire film. That's never good. I was nervous until the trailer came out. I was very nervous what we were going to get. Hell, it was going to be anime. Yeah, they were going to do an animated version at one point. I did read that. Yes. What? Yeah, this script, when Mel Gibson got too old and too controversial, George Miller was like, screw it, let's make it a cartoon. Well, I will say this. When I looked at George Miller's resume from the last 20 years... He's only made Babe, Happy Feet, and Happy Feet 2. So I guess he would be thinking about animation, because basically that's all he really had been doing at this point. This is 70-year-old man directing a $150 million movie in the African desert with actors that allegedly hated each other. Yeah, it did have all the makings of a problem picture. It's kind of a marvel that it even got released. Yeah, I mean, things that were almost comical that delayed the production, I mean, I guess... Maybe comical is not the right word, but the economy collapsed, which means the dollar got real weak against the Australian dollars. They had to stop production. 
And then they go to shoot in Australia in the desert where it hasn't rained for decades. And all of a sudden it starts raining and it blooms with wildflowers. So it's not the right look. They're going to shoot over by Iraq and the war breaks out there. So they can't film there. I mean, so much went wrong with this. Mel Gibson called the cop sugar tits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mel Gibson, way back in 98, 17 years ago, he was going to be in this. And then he had his breakdown. Yeah, I think that they would have made it with him all the way up until that point. Even if he had aged as poorly as I think he's aged, they would have made this movie with Mad Max, the original, if he hadn't gone Mad Max on that lady cop. <laughs> And his girlfriend. And the Jews. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> Maybe the homosexuals. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So the guy's toxic. Anyone not Catholic, basically. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The guy's toxic. That was a sign of encouragement. Quite honestly, I didn't have a lot invested in the series because, obviously, I hadn't seen any of them before. I wasn't a fan or an enemy. Not having Mel there, having Tom Hardy, a character actor I liked, this seemed encouraging. Yeah, it largely was just, I didn't know whether we were going to build up to this film or whether we were going to wait further down the road for another movie that may or may never come. We'll see. It depends on how much money they make back on this gargantuan effort. Tom Hardy signed for four. Well, I'm sure that he'll come back, but <laughs> will they have $150 million to make this again? Will 73-year-old George Miller be able to still do this? Well, I'll say this. This movie took so long that why they were working on this film they finished a screenplay for another film and a treatment for a third. So they, they have ideas ready to go. It's I think it's a matter if this makes money or not. And see how funny I thought that basically every idea they had for a trilogy, they just decided in the end to stick in this film. Because let me say, is jam-packed. Uh, yeah, enough for a whole movie universe. Yeah, well, the way they did this, too, I mean, there's been people saying, oh, we didn't have a script. There was a script. They didn't start out with one, though. They storyboarded <laughs> this entire film first, and whenever they felt they needed dialogue, they'd write it in the margins. They brought in a comic book writer, Brendan McCarthy, who, I think he's from the UK. He's done a lot of 2000 AD stuff. Some real trippy stuff that I've read of his, like Zosser of Zilk, just very psychedelic. But they sat down and just started storyboarding the film. 3,500 storyboard panels, and then they went back and created a script out of that, and they said a lot of the times, oh, yeah, let's just refer to these storyboards for whatever scene this is. We're not going to write it out. That's hysterical, because for listeners who don't know, the standard is when writing a screenplay, each page is one minute. So if you're watching a 90-minute film, that would be a 90-page screenplay. This is a 120-minute film, and I'm guessing, thinking that they started with a screenplay, 20 pages? 22 pages, <laughs> and just a lot of action scene here, because not a lot of talking, a hell of a lot of visuals. This is going to be a totally different type of review for us, because we normally go through the plot. Here, what the fuck is the plot? I do feel, I think you said it on Maniac, the original Maniac, Arnie, we could talk about this film a lot, and we're not going to be spoiling anything. I, I really do feel that. That Yeah, this is not about the dialogue that's going to happen. It's about the visuals. Well then, Arnie, why don't you go ahead and give it to him? I imagine this will be the shortest plot summary in now playing history. Mad Max Fury Road is a two-hour chase as Max, played by Tom Hardy, and one-armed badass driver Imperator Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, try to rescue five pregnant women from their sexual slavery to warlord ruler Immortan Joe. The chase involves several different warrior clans, and eventually one of Joe's war boys, Nux, played by Nicholas Holt, joins Max's side. More chases ensue as Furiosa tries to lead everyone to the green place, which was her birthplace. 
But when they arrive, they find her clan is mostly dead and the green place is no more, turned into a toxic swamp. So Max suggests Furiosa and her group return to the unguarded citadel, now unguarded as every troop is in pursuit of the women, and take over. So they turn around, race back, kill Joe along the way, though Nux has to sacrifice himself during the ride, and returning triumphant to the citadel, Furiosa and the women are hailed as the new rulers, and they turn on the water for all to drink while Max fades away into the crowd and credits roll. So that is it. I mean, really, this movie takes almost no time getting started. It starts, and within 30 seconds of a blood-soaked, rusted Warner Brothers logo, a chase begins, and it will stop about two hours later. But I have to ask right away, our introduction to Tom Hardy as Max. We see his car. We see him standing there. Is he taking a piss? No, I think he's looking over the land where he's going to drive. He's listening. I mean, we'll see. There's people chasing him, and he jumps as soon as he hears them coming. I, I didn't take it that he was taking a piss. He is going to get himself a meal, though. I do love the reveal. This lizard walks up. It turns. You see its two heads. And then Tarim Hardy steps on it and eats it. I don't know. For me, this speaks so much to the character. We've talked a lot about Max and how he's not much of a character. And I do feel like, yeah, Max, he's not going to be a whole lot of character here. But this is a different version. This one is more grizzled. This one, whether this is a reboot or a sequel, it's kind of both. But it is a Max that is even more withdrawn than we've seen in the other films. You know, I'm guessing Hardy knew his lines before he ever showed up for the first day of set. I think he has maybe 12 words in this and a lot of variations on grunts. But he does say a lot here in the voiceover. I do feel like he'll introduce himself to the audience. He'll never give his name out to anyone that he meets. But, you know, he does in voiceover say, my name is Max, and he does talk about madness. Is the world mad, or is he mad? The world is insane, for sure. He is, I think, pretty even-tempered. He's not angry. Like, you, you can't take the meaning of the word mad as in, He's rage-filled, but he is insane because he's haunted by ghosts. And this is how I know that not to connect too much to the previous three movies. What's haunting him, I think, is a wife that died, but it's mostly this vision of a daughter, which we knew Sprague was a boy. So they made the choice for us to forget about the Mel Gibson incarnation. Maybe. Do we know that's a daughter, though? I never took it as a daughter. I actually, for a lot of the film, maybe thought that was Furiosa, and he didn't save her, and she was captured. We'll find out she was captured later by Joe. But no, we see her get run down, so I never took it as the daughter. I think they saved that in case they want to bring it back for a sequel. Here's my take on this, and I did see this movie twice, because it's mostly a visual film. I felt like if we're going to go into this depth... I had to really pay attention, and much of the dialogue is completely incomprehensible, and I think intentionally. George Miller has said repeatedly that he wanted this to play like an opera or something where in foreign countries you don't need subtitles. So what is said isn't even necessary to understanding who the good guys and bad guys are. I took this little girl as a daughter on my first watching, but on my second watching, I noticed she doesn't call him dad. She calls him Max. Part of me was wondering, is this one of the lost children from Thunderdome? Did they die? But he's haunted by so many people. The only negative reaction I had to this film is when there's this morph scene of all these various ghosts haunting Max, and it looked to me just like the Nick Cage morph scene out of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> but there's so many people haunting him. He says he runs from both the living and the dead. 
So this could be just another dead person. It doesn't have to be little Sprog, or it could be a retcon. But you're right. I don't take this Tom Hardy as mad. Gibson, in his portrayal, always brought an insanity. He carried it through Lethal Weapon, too. So maybe Gibson himself just is a little insane. And personal life. Yeah. 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 Well, I can't decide if that's insanity or just bad taste, but this is more dour Max or mundane Max. I don't know. Did this even need to be a Mad Max film or could this have been a totally new series started by George Miller? Is the Mad Max name worth anything beyond a cult hit 30 years since the last installment? And is this really the same character? I don't see the sense of continuity that I saw as, say, between Sean Connery and Timothy Dalton. I think this is the same character. To me, if this wasn't a Mad Max film, well, if I saw that trailer, I'd still probably want to see it. But the fact that this was a Mad Max film had an appeal to me as one of those cult followers, one of those people that really enjoyed those old films. And I, I think that is part of the appeal. If you could get the people that really rapid fans, especially in the age of the internet, talking about it and hyping it up, that leaks out, and you, you get people who aren't as familiar with Mad Max. But again, if this is a progression, George Miller said that the whole post-apocalypse thing was kind of a result because of a really low budget for his original film, because they didn't have the money to film where there were people with crowds and buildings. So they said it a few years in the future, and that kind of just took off and really set the tone of the Mad Max films. And for him, what he has said is that it's about the wasteland now. It's about these different groups trying to survive, and Max is just that character that takes us through that tour of this post-apocalypse. I think we've all said that with the other films. Max has never really been the focus. He kind of just takes us through and we see all the craziness, and I feel that's what he's going to do here. Right. I completely agree. I just was wondering if it even needed to be Max. Couldn't this have been sold as from the mind of Mad Max creator and have a different post-apocalyptic hero. For purely commerce reasons, the answer to that is no. Nobody gets $150 million to make an original vision unless they're James Cameron. It needed to tie to some franchise. It needed to reassure the investors that there was uh, huge profits to be made by going to this universe. But yeah, I agree with you, Jacob. There's no reason to call this character Max. What Miller wants to return to is the world he created, and he's never cared about Max. In fact, it's not only a misnomer to call it Mad Max, but it's a misnomer to call it Fury Road, because that's the road that goes to a gas land that they'll never invade. <laughs> They're never going to go there. I don't think they were trying to invade Gas Town. They were going there to get gas. You, you we get these three... We get Waterworld, not the literal Waterworld, but the Citadel, where Furiosa's from. They have the clean water. You have the Gasland, or Gas Town, where they have a refinery. And then you have the bullet farm where they make the ammunition. I felt like those three had some kind of trade agreement and they travel in between each other to trade goods. Yeah, that's what I got from it as well. He's sending water and coming back with bullets. Actually, Mother's Milk, in a very horrifying scene, we see Morton Joe hooks women up like cows and pumps their breast milk. And they have a whole tanker full of it to give to gas down. This is, I think an impressive vision. I mean, George Miller with $150 million, so much more than he's had for any of these previous Mad Max films. I imagine if he had, could do whatever he wanted in Thunderdome with that city and the underground, it would have been a whole lot more like this. 
every single person here is like diseased and deformed. I think it really sells that the radiation, I mean, it starts with that two-headed lizard. Radiation has fucked up almost everyone, at least in Australia, if not the entire <laughs> world. So many people are missing limbs or just have huge tumors growing out of them, scarred, wrecked. And to the point that, yeah, these obese women are cows now. They have pumps hooked up to them, constantly pouring out mother's milk for them to drink. It's grotesque, yet, I suppose, functional. Yeah, let's talk about Sid at all, because that's the first place that Max is going to go. He tries to escape and is caught relatively easy by the war boys. And they take to, I think, indoctrinating him into their clan. Not quite so. He is to be a blood bag. I think that's the word they kept using. Yeah, it's interesting. I wish I had this on Blu-ray. I will. So I could freeze frame. They're tattooing his back. And I see, like, Universal Donor written on there. And they got, I saw Road Warrior. They, they have, like, all the information about who this character is tattooed on him. A couple of things I caught on the second viewing were, like, multiple scars, Eyes okay, genitals intact. <laughs> yeah, they put type O there. I wasn't sure what was going on either. They go to brand him, and he tries to escape. I mean, we just start with action. We start with him being chased. They flip his car, and then he's not in captivity for 30 seconds of film time before he's running from them again and jumping like you saw in the trailer onto that hook with his handcuffs. I mean, he's showing in the first two minutes of this film that he's a badass, but he can't overcome all these war boys. Maybe it's because I'm in Los Angeles and this is a movie town. Saw this Thursday night, almost a packed theater. I counted six spontaneous applauses during this film. And yeah, <laughs> this opening chase, this got the crowd into it right after this opening chase. And then they go to Mad Max Fury Road, like people were already cheering. It had pumped him up, had adrenalized the crowd. Yeah, Max is not going to win, and it tells us right from the get-go. He'll spend much of the first third of the movie with, like, another Bane, like, face yes. mask. I feel like everyone's Bane in this movie. Morton Joe's Bane. Tom Hardy loves a mask over his face, I guess. I'm not sure he would talk a lot even if he didn't have one of those things, but I guess it's to prevent him from biting you. He will be rendered subservient to the war boys. And the way I take this to mean is that these are kids, boys, that have been trained to be suicide bombers. And that they're dying anyway, they know and have made peace and even named their tumors, and that they need blood bags to sort of give them the vitality to go into battle. That without having a bloodstream in them, they would just be emaciated and not able to go. They also have some kind of like metallic spray paint that right yes. before the, the last moments, when they know this is it, they give themselves an extra boost and spray their mouth so that they can, you know, really go out with a bang, literally. I take this, and I read one interview with Miller. I didn't do all the research that Jacob did, but that they worship chrome. I thought this was literal chrome spray paint, and they don't care about the toxicity because, I mean, when they pick up the steering wheels for their cars, they make this prayer motion. There's the blessing, you know, may you ride eternal in Valhalla, shiny and chrome. When gas is such a commodity and cars are your weapons, it's what they worship. But I inferred the same thing you did. It's never stated, but that these are all basically terminal people dying of radiation poisoning 
They need blood transfusions, and rather than have willing donors, because there's no one really healthy, they capture the healthy people they can, chain them up, and keep them alive so that they can keep producing blood that keeps the war boys fighting. Yeah, there's always been a weird sense of religion in these Mad Max films. You know, Lord Humongous would, would almost talk biblically, and that's always been a theme, I felt like, when these societies crumble and you try to build them, maybe you got to use religion. That's how you get the people subservient and get them to go along with you. And this, we see it, this is the most explicit one, where, yeah, they're praying to the steering wheels and there's like a big altar of steering wheels that they grab when they go out to war. But I I think it's pretty obvious that, yeah, they need these blood bags, these human blood bags to stay alive, like because they are all dying. We see the crowds that the regular uh, people that live in the Citadel down below and they're all, yeah, tumors and deformities all over them. They could barely stand. They, they don't get water. These war boys. These are the ones willing to fight, willing to be indoctrinated. And I do like that Miller, like one of the things he said is he didn't want to stop the film because when you do exposition, you got to stop a film and have people talk back and forth about stuff that really doesn't matter, but the audience needs to know. He really wanted to find another way to do that exposition. I felt like, yeah, these war boys, they're all dying because of radiation. They need regular blood transfusions. And we see all that. We get all that if you pay attention to the film without that being told to us. Yeah, no, I want to go against what I had been saying for the last three films. For the last three films, I've been saying, you know, there's not enough plot and it would be interesting to explore these things. I now recognize Miller is an artist and he is just going to tell what he is interested in and what doesn't interest him, he's not going to explore. And so I am giving myself to his vision. I don't care that I don't care about Max this time. And I am more fascinated with the world. There is plenty here in the Citadel. Again, much like Bartertown, we don't ever have to leave the Citadel. I feel like if we just had an action movie inside the confines of this world, certainly when we see its scary-ass leader, I would be completely fine with it. I mean, I'm willing to go with a movie where plot is subservient to awe. I'll agree with you. And I'm normally the plot guy. But that's what I was saying at the start of this podcast, is that this is a different type of film where it's all about the visuals. And it's a risky move to make, because if you're going to say that you're going to base 100% of your film just on the visuals, and it's going to be really a art film. I mean, that's the only way I can look at this, is as an artistic expression, yet because that art is of violent car wrecks, it's going to appeal to the masses more than other types. You're playing one hand, and you're putting it all in on that one hand. You've got to be solid in what you're doing. I'm wondering, we still have time, we're not done yet, for Arnie to throw out the artistic douchebaggery comment, because, yeah, I feel like Miller, he is approaching this as an artist, and how is this, you know, taking this action film, except that it's, yeah, like you said, Arnie, it's an action film, and it's going to appeal more to the masses, but how is taking an action film, and I'm just going to base it on visuals, I'm just just a mosaic of visual and sound, and that's all it's going to be, how is that different than, oh, I'm going to film the same cast over a 12-year period and tell a story? Or I'm going to use some motion picture tricks to make a film like Birdman look like all one long take. I mean, those are all artistic endeavors. They're, I, because of their subject matter, people see those, I think, as art films. Here, they're going to see it as an action film. But I think Miller, yeah, he is an artist. And he is doing something with 
what would be a lowbrow film and raising it up with his artistic vision. Yeah, this is the important thing to realize. And this is why something like this will never make as much money as Fast and the Furious, which is sad to me. Very sad. But <laughs> Fast and the Furious sells a fantasy. You want to be in those muscle cars. You want to be with those women or with those guys. It's sexy. It sells speed as something that you can be a part of. This movie presents all the same car chases and wrecks and carnage, but it presents it in a context that is mortifying. That, I mean, yes, where women are subservient, where there are no people of color, where everyone is covered in tumors and dying. It is the opposite of sexy. And so, while I do see that this is as a lot that's going to appeal to people from a visual standpoint... A lot of people aren't going to want to go here. <laughs> a lot of people are not going to want to spend too much time in the Citadel. I'm very intrigued. Like I said, when we see their leader, it's fantastic. Not the least of which because it's Toe Cutter again. Yes. Also about 70 years old returning to this world. Yeah. His body is like pizza dough. I mean, the, the, his Ugh. intro here is fantastic. Like, he can barely pull it together. He is so close to death. He's on a ventilator that they turn into a smile. Yeah, using horse teeth. Is it a smile or is it like... I took it as just a vicious bearing of teeth, and his breath mask is so pointed, it's almost like a vicious beak. Yeah, everything about this costume is to make him look tougher than he is. When you see that doughy skin, we all know that mask from the trailers. What they also, yeah, they put on this like clear body arm with muscles molded into it and like war military pins put onto it to make him look tougher. Yeah, everything here is about an illusion. Yeah, you wonder what he was like in his prime. You get the sense that this is an old man still trying to do it and being propped up, you know, like probably going to like share in Vegas or something like that. You're just seeing <laughs> a lot of work going into keeping this artifact doing what it used to do so well. I'm just wondering how he's impregnating five gorgeous women. Is it? artificial insemination? Is he still very sexually active? I don't really want to think of it, but I will say <laughs> that I did wonder the first time I saw this movie, knowing that George Miller wanted to make the humongous goose from that first film, right? I had to wonder if this guy was Toe Cutter from the first film, maybe not as dead as we thought, or was he Goose comeback because he's hidden behind a mask, because his body is so deformed and full of burns and scars and tumors i wondered if there would be this was my first time watching when i thought there might be a plot that would have twists and story and characters that he might be someone from max's past but no he's yet another evil warlord the fourth in four films here and once i realized that i was okay with it but i did have my suspicions given that they never show us his face in the early scenes or ever in the film until it's ripped apart and he's evil because he hoards water. I mean, it is, to be clear, it's not because he's old and scary looking, although that usually telegraphs you're evil. It's because he has, he lives this posh life in a penthouse. He's got honeys in vaults and babies in pools of water. And he, every now and then, will just dribble out to the dying people below, like, 30 seconds of a water stream and say, hey, don't get addicted to this. Not the most efficient choice of water distribution. I'm kind of glad <laughs> that my municipality doesn't just throw it on the ground and hope I get a bucket. I'm glad there's pipes so it's less wasted. But he's an evil warlord. I think this tells us he's a despot. He's living up just like in Thunderdome. He's living above the people in a raised city as Tina Turner did. And his groundlings are below just begging for the scraps that 
he throws off. In Thunderdome, it was Tina who provided the electricity thanks to Master Blaster. Here, this guy pumps up. I love that they call it Aqua Cola, that he can then basically patent, trademark, and control <laughs> distribution of. Yeah, it's a fantastic idea of commerce and, and how you control people. It's It's very simple. And it's very effective. And because it's done with $150 million, it is the most staggering vision Miller has yet presented. I will say this is one of my few disappointments with this film, is the villains have always been the best part. Toe Cutter, probably my favorite anti-entity, Tina Turner. I, I just call her Tina Turner. I don't even call her by her name when I talk about that film. She's great. Lord of Humongous is great. I feel like Immortan Joe is so old and decrepit like he's got a scary look i i'd never get a real performance from him which was a bit of a letdown like i love the citadel i love everything around him as far as his performance and just him being a villain outside of this world he has set up that was a little bit of a disappointment because i have loved these villains so much here we're gonna see him growling a lot and looking tough in a car but not much more i disagree i think he is perhaps the best villain of the whole series i really do i thought that it was going to go the way you just kind of described your feelings were. Like, this emperor has no clothes kind of thing. I mean, he's being helped out of a chair. It seems like he can barely walk in the early scenes. He's wearing a plastic see-through shirt that I just... My envision is it's keeping his insides from spilling <laughs> out. It's like a second skin, like almost a plastic bubble. And I'm like, I didn't want that. I didn't want the city to be ruled by a cripple and see Mad Max have to overcome and probably kill a cripple. That's not the case after this scene. He's out there. He's driving the cars. He's standing up. Is he good in a fist fight? No. But he is completely evil. And he's also a little bit complex. I mean, he has these women. They're called breeders, but it also at other times they're called his wives. Does he care for them? Is he using them just for offspring? He wants them alive. They're probably pregnant. He puts chastity belts on them with very serrated edges around the vaginas, lest any other man get an idea. But I think he's the most complex villain we've had since at least the original Mad Max. And I think the villains, I think this is a greatest hits tour. I think we get them all. I think He's Toe Cutter in Tina Turner's wig. We also get <laughs> Lord Humongous. He's got this son. I think it's a biological son, this muscle man. Yes. He seems very much like Lord Humongous. He's called Rictus Erectus. So, yeah, if you weren't thinking about <laughs> sex already. I a lot of people in this movie are Joe's kids. I didn't catch this till the second watching, but the little person who's watching the telescope and is really deformed, he's another one of his sons. Master, as I called him. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, he's the brother, and yeah, I think, yeah, the, these visions, they say a lot. Like I said, we don't see a lot of chance for them to be evil in this beginning, other than the use of the water, but I get it instantly with the visuals. This is a scary crew. You would not want to live in a society where these people ruled you. Yet, he's not totally evil to those he rules. I mean, he kind of is, but he is the one who gives the dying boy's hope and it seems like he actually has a cadre of people he trusts who aren't his kin such as imperiator furiosa although i think imperiator just sounds like a title instead of a name but the, i think that's her first name but he proclaims how great she is and in front of everyone when she's taking the mother's milk to Gastown to trade for some gasoline. So it's trade. I w it wasn't clear to me because she's going with an army of war boys and they're so keen on battle. 
I thought they were going into battle, but they're just there to protect her as she goes down Fury Road. Yeah, we find out there's this other nomads. I call them sand people. It's the one time we do get subtitles in this film because they speak a different language and they're all wrapped up like the Tusken Raiders from Star Wars. Yeah, I, that's who they're protecting this convoy from. So they got to take some warriors out because, again, it is the post-apocalypse. Things aren't all peaceful. I'd like to point out we're about 15 minutes into this film <laughs> when this drive down Fury Road begins. I'm guessing it's trade because she's taking a truck full of stuff. And yeah, they're very friendly. I also get that Joe rules over both the Bullet Farm and Gastown. Because when the time comes, they do his bidding. Even though there's some accountant there from Gastown just talking about how stupid it is to spend so much resources going after his wives. I just took it as a trade agreement. Like, if I don't have my breeders, you're not going to get your mother's milk. It, it was that kind of setup. I, I took it like these were the rulers from all three of these towns. Okay, so Gasland is the people eater. We'll see later the guy with the fucked up feet. Yes, and, and no nose. No nose. Okay, he is the Gasland guy. I wish that had been established early. Like I said, I thought because of the we're in a Mad Max movie and because of Road Warrior, we see an oil refinery in the distance. She's going in for battle, that we're going to get a really spectacular raid, attack, a busting in of this facility. But what you're describing makes more sense. This is basically just bartering and that, yeah, Joe rules all of this in the end. He is put his face on everybody. You know, everyone wears his face as a brand. Furiosa has it on the back of her neck. I think they're all his children. I do think that is the way to think of it. But they're not all biologically his children. He has gone through the wasteland and everyone that he collected, he turned into a, a war boy or a subservient for himself. But now that he's dying and now that there seems to be no new people, it's important to reproduce or humanity dies. This is the last gasp of humanity, or at least in Australia. Is it that he's trying to ensure the survival of the species? Because he's a bad guy, I took this as vanity. He wanted a perfect son. It, not just a perfect child, a perfect son who could rule when he's dead. And yeah, he's obviously falling apart, so he's in a hurry. He has taken all the perfect women to make his wives. There's a lot of women around, several of them pumping out milk. And I wondered if those women used to be attractive, and then they gave birth, got old, and now they're just milk farms, and that's what's in store for the five brides we're going to meet. But... He wants one that is born without the scars, because much like the other films, but more so here, everyone is fucked up. That son, Richter, has like this huge jaw strap on, and the other son is a dwarf with feet coming out of his stomach. I mean, everyone is so screwed up. All he wants is a normal human. Yeah, I think he's trying to come up with a purified offspring, one that isn't diseased with the half-life. Like, these are all people poisoned with radiation. We know that Furiosa, she comes from a different tribe where at least at one point they had water that they thought was clean, so they don't have the deformities. And I'm going to assume that these, at least these five wives that we're going to see, I got the sense that they were kidnapped from that same tribe, perhaps. We're never told. The only thing we're told is Furiosa, she knows the road back there. She says she's done it many times, and now she's looking for redemption. I almost got the sense that maybe Furiosa she was brainwashed at one point and helped kidnap brides for Immortan Joe. Nice. I hadn't thought about that. But the green place is also called the land of the many mothers. So if Joe had kidnapped people to be 
mothers to his offspring from there. That makes sense. I had never thought of that. It's as good a stipulation as any. I like it. Again, there's no exposition in this film. If you want lengthy explanations why things are happening, this is not the film for you. You're going to have to look at the blur of color and motion and come up with your story. I think, you know, there are gas wars. There are water wars. I think there are gender wars. I do feel like yeah, every woman that is under Joe is there subserviently, unwillingly, a captive. We'll find out that Furiosa was taken as a child. Charlize is a very beautiful woman, but I get the sense that perhaps because of the missing arm, she was not deemed viable as going into the vault. Perhaps, but I mean, that missing arm... Well, I guess it could have been a birth deformity. I took that as she lost it in battle. She has this awesome fake arm. I love her fake arm. And the way that they do it, I mean, sometimes you see her with just her half arm and the hand and forearm is missing. But she's got this thing. It straps around her waist and it creates this cool sci-fi shoulder pauldron. And it's got three fingers and you can see through it at some time. And I'm just thinking, wow, that's really good CGI. It all moves. Yeah, if George Miller's to be believed, and who knows how much of this is hype, how much trying to protect his reputation as a practical effects guy, but he says 80% of the of, of what you're seeing on this screen, they actually did with cars flipping and that. Only about 20% CGI in that arm. Yes, of course, that is CGI. But it is done so well. Like, she's going to fight Max at one point and, like, hit him with the stump. It looks like she's really missing an arm in this film. Yeah, and what a dramatic thing to do. I mean, the investors, we have to be happy. Beautiful woman going to be in this. She's done sci-fi before. It was bad sci-fi, but, you know, Prometheus and Eon Flux, a known quantity. And then he's going to shave her so she looks like a boy. And Charlize said it was her idea to shave her head, that she did not want to be a beautiful heroine. She wanted to make herself look tougher, and she claims that was her idea. Well, she's done it before. You know, she won an Oscar for Monster, and I do feel like she gets uh, applause when she, you know, people love to see beautiful people go ugly. It's just a thing with us. We're just like, oh, that's we like to see that they can be destroyed. (laughs) I don't know, but we like to see that in her, the lack of vanity for someone that is so beautiful. And But again, a surprise that, you know, again, a choice where you're getting away from a commercial selling point. Charlize is in this, but Charlize is never thought of, I don't think of, as a, a, a sexual object, the way that all the other women are. She seems like the perfect match for Max, though. Yes. <laughs> and indeed, I do wonder if we're supposed to think that the camaraderie that they eventually forge has some underlying sexual tension. Hard to know. Yeah, according to Biller, no. He didn't even want to go there. They felt that was against what he's trying to tell. But she has sided with the other women. At heart, she is still a woman in her mind, even if she looks like a war boy. And she has made a deal off screen. We'll never see these scenes. I suspect there might be comic books or video games or something. There are comics coming out next week. I don't know why they didn't release prequel comics before the film. That's what they usually do. But they're all coming out after the film for some reason. Yeah, I imagine these storylines will. There's a lot of strands that you can take and go to. Her pact with the women in the vault to get them out and get them back to her home. She's obviously worked it out with some of the warriors in the wasteland that are enemies of Joe as well. So there is a complicated history that we're not aware of. We're like the war boys. They're like, why are you pulling off Fury Road? Why are we taking this detour? We will really never know. And I feel, do we need to know? Like, that is one of the difficult things with writing. Where do you start a story? Where do you end a story? Yeah, we could have got a half hour of her sneaking the five wives into the truck. Well, no. If you want empathy with these characters, by and large, if you want to create 
characters that people relate to, yes. then yes, that's exactly what you do, is you give us the half an hour of the people in their daily lives. They're sex slaves. I don't know if I need a half hour of that to empathize with them. No, I'm not talking about the sex slaves. I'm specifically talking about Furiosa and Max. You could give us the half an hour like we kind of had in Thunderdome to see what that city is like. Because it is such an extreme situation of sex slavery, you can take that presumed empathy. But presumed empathy is a dangerous and bad writing trick. Yes, all the pro-sex slave people will be upset and won't empathize. Too bad for them. <laughs> exactly. But that means I empathize with the sex slaves. I empathize with their situation. I'm rooting for Furiosa only because I don't want to see women in sex slavery, but it doesn't connect me to her as a person. You could put any avatar in that driver's seat, and whoever it is, it could have been the dwarf with the feet coming out of his stomach. I'm going to root for that person because they're stopping sex slavery. It doesn't connect me to the person. It's bad character writing. Right. It could have been Max. I mean, he, again, he is still locked up. He's in a cage. They're going to use him as a blood bag for Nux, one of the war boys. Yeah, it could have been Max. I just got talked into it and decided to rescue him. But no, they go with another character here. This is not, again, Max's story. He is the one that we're seeing this all through, but these are like little novellas of the wasteland told by George Miller. Oh, and I love that. You know, looking at it when I walked out of the theater and realizing that only the first story was Max's story. The rest, he's like the Lone Ranger or Zorro, you know? He goes town to town, discovers other people's problems, fixes them, and then continues on his way. He's the Knight Rider. But not the Knight Rider from the first film, but the Knight Rider from the TV show. <laughs> Exactly. And so I like that. He's like a superhero who's going to come in, fix a problem, and go on his way. And I'm perfectly okay seeing him as a vital hero in other people's story. My second time watching this, I gave it the Indiana Jones litmus test. Would Furiosa have been successful had Max not joined? Because initially, Max is a blood bag. He's running from the living and the dead. He doesn't necessarily care if those women are in sex slavery or not. He's ready to leave them all behind after his car flips and he catches up to them. And he's walking around expecting warriors. And you find those five brides looking like they're on a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model shoot with shooting each other with water and erect nipples. I love that reveal. That kind of big laugh. Like, yeah, you're walking through the desert. I mean, there's just been this huge, massive chase scene that we skipped over. And not to go through it beat by beat, but there are some great moments here. These They're called buzzers. The spiky cars, they go into the big dust storm. Dust storm is my favorite visual of this whole movie, by the way. The lightning coming on the ground and the cars racing through it. It kind of goes into the solarized black and white view when the lightning strikes. Just amazing. It's a visual symphony. Yeah, I do love that. You know, Max, I am giddy at this point. He is a blood bag. Nux, I get the sense that he's like the main first-hand man after, you know, Erictus and all that, but the main driver for Morton Joe. No, no. The thing I love about Nux is he's an everyman. He is a driver, but not the main driver. During the start of the chase, he's so giddy because Joe looked at him, and it's the first time ever Joe looked at him. He does fight with another character over a steering wheel. Someone else takes his favorite car because they thought he was too sick to fight. He's like, no. I'm taking it, just hook up my blood bag to the car. So we get the great shot of Max, you know, mounted to the front of this car with this bloodline. I like that because it's a throwback to Road Warrior. Yes. And I wondered if all those people on the front of cars were now blood bags. <laughs> 
I do feel like this film, it's never winking and nodding to the audience about the previous film. It uses imagery, but it's never throwing out puns that you would get if you watched the previous films. I don't think it wants to do that. That's because puns require words. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of grunting. But yeah, the fact that Max, he's still, we're getting the first big chase. Max is strapped to a car. And then they go into that big desert storm. And Nux, he wants to, yeah, be a suicide bomber. He fills his car up with gas. He's going to suicide bomb himself into this truck, even though they're not supposed to kill the five brides. They're only supposed to stop the truck and stop Furiosa. But Max stops him. Yeah, you're right, Arnie. It's a great scene. And I feel like this is where we're going to get the most just straight up CGI because, well, if anyone can figure out a way to shoot this practically, I'm sure George Miller could. But there's no way to shoot it practically. But yeah, I love that. After this huge intense, again, the audience erupted into applause afterwards. You get Max walking through the desert. Isn't that like the joke? You see the mirage. It's these five gorgeous women all hosing each other down with water. It was a funny reveal of the five wives. It's not just a mirage. It's my dream every night. But <laughs> but he's not really interested in taking that. Because he is a blank as a character, we don't ever suspect he's capable of rape or doing anything benevolent either. I mean, he neither looks like a villain nor a hero to them. He basically just needs to get cut off from the IV because the chain between him and Nux is still there. The gun wouldn't blow his arm off. I feel that another homage to previous Mad Max films where the shotgun just fizzles out. Yeah, he's unhooked the IV so he's not leaking blood anymore, but he's still tethered to this guy, this corpse, we think, or he thinks that he wants to get away from. So that's all that his real concern is, is like, can we make these girls, if they're cutting off their chastity belts, you can cut me free of this as well. But he's ready to leave them, even though it's quite obvious they're going back to a world of sex slavery. He jumps in that vehicle, and only when he finds out it has a kill switch, then he's like, Furiosa, since you're required for this to run, then you can come with me. But they stay behind. And it's a very cold moment. And it's what I love about Max's character is he's very Machiavellian. He's going to be out for his own survival. He's animalistic in that way. But yet there's also a goodness in him in that he, in the movies, in four movies, he never actually lets any good people get fucked over. He'll go out of his way eventually to save them once they're on, once he knows they're on his side. Yeah, but and that is the limited character arc you're going to get here. At the beginning, he says, and in the trailer, it says, I've been reduced to a single instinct survival. And that's what we're going to see here at the beginning. He just wants to get out of there. It's sense that Miller is almost embarrassed to think about heroes, that he just doesn't believe in it. What he loves is craziness. And that's what he captures, you know, with every chase scene, with every visual, with every power structure. He captures a world gone mad. The idea of coming up with a hero to fix that, not his bag. He can't imagine that. And so Mad Max is as close to that as he can get. And uh, it's enough. For a while, I struggled with this series in that we didn't have a hero to root for. And now I'm listening to Tina. I mean, we don't need another hero. <laughs> and they're not fixing it by recasting. Tom Hardy is just as self-serving, just as driven by his own needs as Mel Gibson ever was. And yeah, I'm actually happy that they haven't compromised the character now that they have more money and had him see that these women need help and wants to help them. He's no, he's like, I want to get away in the truck. And when the truck doesn't work, I'm willing to take the one person that knows the kill switch. But I do not care about these women. I do not want them for myself. And I do not want to protect them from what's coming. And I got to say, what's coming? Man, if there is a favorite <laughs> character, I don't think it's a character. I mean, yeah, character has to have dimension. 
But the favorite icon about this movie, the one that everyone will remember this movie for, you hear him before you see him. <laughs> it's gotta be the, he's billed as a doof warrior. And this is, yes, he plays a guitar that shoots fire. This is an actual underground musician from Australia up there playing guitar. Come on, Stuart and I, we hated the score for the first and second film. I kind of like the third one for most of it. This is the best score. I've already purchased it. I've got it on the Warboy-themed vinyl where it's white with silver inlay, like the spray paint they use. Oh, yeah, hipster. As soon as I heard the soundtrack, I had to get it. But just the idea that they're going to take into battle, it's very impractical. They've got a, a row of amps and this guy tethered to it. With drummers mounted on the back. Yeah, six drummers. Oh, and this guy, he's the most deformed of them all. He almost looks like a Cenobite from one of the later cheaper Hellraiser films with his pulled back face and teeth. And he's on bungee cords, so he could like leap around on the moving truck. And I agree with you, Jacob. It's an average score honestly, in my mind, except when the guitarist comes. And the way it plays, the guitar is only in the score when that guitarist is in frame or nearby. Yeah, it's a warning sound. You can hear it like far off and you're like, oh, they're coming. Yeah, and it makes it seem like it's an actual practical sound effect versus part of the score. I actually wish the score had more of that guitar. I love the guitar in it. It reminded me a lot, and I was reminded a lot of this movie, but in this way of Apocalypse Now, in the way that they would play Wagner before they would go into the raid and bomb the villages. It's like, you just hear this amazing sound approaching and you know badness is coming. I mean, it, it just denounces how much trouble they're in as they're arguing over the truck. And, and Max is like, no, we'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait you out. I love this power dynamic that they got going here. And I love Doof Warrior. I want to say, Arnie, I loved him so much. I went and did some research and this actor says that his backstory explains that face. It isn't a mutation. He apparently had a mother character that was beheaded, and he now, like Leatherface, wears her flesh over his <laughs> while he plays. Yeah, you don't see it until the very end of the film where that hood comes off, but it's quite a reveal. And I just love his pose and the way he's like rocking out. I didn't know if it was a real guitarist. I kind of suspected it was, or if it was just like a acrobat or someone who just could do the great body movements, but it's such an extreme pose. And yeah, Gene Simmons, eat your heart out because that guitar, <laughs> the way it just is a flamethrower on the end. And I saw this movie in 3D both times. It's actually worth seeing despite being a post-conversion job. The depth is really good. But late in the movie, when that guitar bungees out in your face and then flies back, it's amazing. Ah, okay. That's why he's on a bungee cord, because he doesn't really need to be. I guess he needs to be tethered, because they're really <laughs> rocking around. It's George Miller. It all has to be crazy. People eater, who I assume runs Gastown. And I assume eats people. Yeah, he, he's got that brass nose. We'll see later. He has like elephant titus. But what I didn't notice at first, but later, he's got the his shirt cut out around his nipples and they're changed together. At one point, he's like rubbing his nipples as he's talking to a Morton Joe. It's This is just George Miller. I don't know what kind of freaky stuff he's into, but this has been his vision since early on. Just this extremism that I, that attracted me to the original films as, as a young kid. And he has, as a 70-year-old man, has not let up. I imagine he throws a great party. Isn't this like a triumph of like both patience and celebration of old age? Like normally we think of going over the hill 
and filmmakers' later films. Yeah, we think of Spielberg and Lucas and, oh, I got to make these kids for my grandkids now. No, not George Miller. Screw his grandkids. He's going to do what he wants. Yeah, I mean, this is not a man that is like going back to an old thing that used to work for him and redoing it. It is a man that has waited Bided his time. For years, he was not allowed to make this movie, and he made every second of that count by planning and having the elaborate detail of his world. It is like art. I mean, it is like art in the way that we just want to experience the depravity of the circumstance. I just want to be enveloped into the world. I really don't care about a plot, honestly. I'm going to detract from George Miller a little bit and say that you're kind of ascribing to the auteur theory of this. I don't know how much of this was Miller's vision and how much of this was Miller having great inventive makeup people, set directors, all of this. Who knows how much happened? What I do know is that so much of this film was reshot. And when they went into editing, they had almost 700 hours of footage. He handed it to his wife, who's not an action movie editor, to say, edit this because you're the only person who can actually make sense out of this. It is a hell of a collaborative effort that I think created this. But I can't say that he took this 20 years and went, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this because it was a chaotic production. The fact that this gorgeous vision came out of that chaos actually makes me think it might be in spite of Miller instead of because of him. No, no, no. Let's be clear. Everything is here because of Miller. Nothing got done that he didn't want to be. Everything. I asked a director one time, like, what is your job? And he says, because sometimes they get credit, exactly as you say, for things that they didn't come up, for the artisans that come up with it. I allowed it to be. That is what he does. Everything that is here met his standard for what he wanted in this world. So whether he thought up the idea of a guitar hero on bungee cords hanging from amps or not, it is a part of his vision. And I believe by taking the amount of time that it did, rather than rushing this thing out two years after Thunderdome, we have an exceedingly more impressive and elaborate vision because of it. I do feel like, yeah, it's the Peter Jackson with the Lord of the Rings camp at directing where, yeah, you've got like four additional second and third unit directors. You got a whole st- studio making costumes you're a manager and yeah he was a good manager here giving people the freedom to come up with ideas and approving things this is a collaborative work but i think george miller gets the credit he's the one that pulls everything together here i i gotta think because this is so much like the previous mad max films as far as the aesthetic but so much more extreme yes that yeah this is miller's involvement yeah and i get the sense that because he's 70 years old he realizes i may never get this opportunity again So we're going all in. Maybe there'll be a sequel to this movie, but I may not even be alive to do it. So I'm (laughs) going to do all my ideas in this movie. This movie feels like excess. It feels like a whole career retrospective in one two-hour lump. I'm always down on like baby boomers and taking our social security money. And yeah, I know he's Australian. He's taking Australian Generation X's social security money. But this makes me like... Oh, okay. The baby boom generation, at least they created George Miller. At least, like, here is an old guy (laughs) that is doing something amazing. George Miller, he he gives me hope of getting to old age and still being able to keep that edge. Admittedly, that I'll agree with, is that being 70 years old, being able to be out there in the desert shooting this, whatever happened. And yeah, I'm not going to point a gun at the man's head and say he's shit and this is in spite of him. And you're right. He allowed this to happen. He filmed the guitar coming out in the face. He filmed it the way it was. 
And it's so frantic. The other thing is he micromanaged the edit. This film has a stuttery look, and I did look this up. Very little of this film is actually running at 24 frames a second. He sped it up, or he slowed it down. If you couldn't see it well enough, he slowed it down. If you could see it too well, he sped it up so you couldn't see it very well. So he did have a lot of control, but I just don't want to give him all the credit, given that there's so much going on here, no one man could do it all. I don't want to give anybody all credit on a collaborative thing such as filmmaking, but yes, looking at this through auteur theory, this is an artist that we have seen him do this in smaller scale, who has finally gotten that big mural to paint. I mean, that is what's so exciting is, I've watched those other Mad Max movies, and they had great things going on them, but they were a small canvas. And now it is amazing to see how much he can cover here in two hours. Yeah, the fact that I was totally blown away by what you said, Arnie, when he filmed this at various speeds and then, yeah, he wanted it to control even like how much of this can you understand by slowing and speeding things up. This is why, yes, this has probably the same amount of, of explosions as a Transformer movie. That's why this is a work of art, though, and that isn't. Like, this is a director that approaches explosions as a painting, and how can I convey something about that to the audience? Not only that, but he doesn't care whether you enjoy it or not. I mean, so much about Hollywood entertainment is about sucking your dick. I mean, it's about saying, oh, this is going to make you feel so good. Miller doesn't want you to feel good. Miller wants you to come to him and see what he sees. And that's why it's staggering. But he does want you adrenalized. He is creating action films for that purpose. Sure. And I think of 70s movies as being dramas that used action to make drama more exciting. And I think of 90s and 2000 movies as action as about sending you into some kind of roller coaster high. And I think this film definitely is going for that and accomplishes it. But I, I think that's intent is to give you that roller coaster high. That, the roller coaster metaphor is very apt here because there's so little story and it's all about going fast and moving. Most of the conversations, what little there are, happen on moving vehicles. It is so rare. It is the transition between acts. I paid attention the second time. The film is broken into four 30-minute short stories and every 30 minutes you get a talking scene that's going to set up what the next chase is and that's it. Yeah, but at no place that we go, even the next place, we're going to get to the green world next. We don't know it. They don't know it yet. It's a marsh. It's not green at all, but it does have water and they get stuck in the mud. There's no place that we're going to go that's pleasant. There's no place that anyone would want to fantasize themselves being in. And I think that's the important distinction here, is that this is a world gone to shit, and at no point does it feel like Pandora. They should have just found Sydney with the kids. I don't want to live there, but I do want to spend time there. I wish we got to spend just a few seconds more in this marsh. I, again, another great action piece. This is the one time the film where the action is pretty much slowed down because the cars can't move. You get the bullet farmer. He's on this, like, the top is a car on tank wheels. He's able to go out on the bog and not get sunk like the rest of the cars have. He pulls a tooth out and sticks it in a gun. This guy has gun teeth. Like, my mind's being blown as I'm watching this film. But yeah, the one piece of action we don't even really see, but it got a great laugh. Like, Mad Max, he goes off. They're like, where's he going? Retaliation. Then you see an explosion. He walks back, covered in blood has a bunch of ammunition, got a boot for Nux because he lost one of his boots. I'm a little bit 
disappointed though that we don't get to see what Max does because there are some people I've seen on Twitter complaining Max doesn't do enough in this movie and the fact that he goes off and retaliates off screen comes back with somebody else's blood on him and right after that he's going to try to shoot the bullet farmer they can see the light in the distance the bullet farmer's coming and he misses three shots Charlie Theron is going to take the gun from him use him as a tripod <laughs> and make the shot it is the one moment, and the only moment, in my opinion, where Max is undermined as a hero. He should be a badass, and to have him do his badassery off screen, it shows where Miller's interest is. The fact that the next film, he intends to call it Mad Max Furiosa, says a lot. Yeah, she's the hero. This is actually, by the end of it, I realize, as misogynistic as some of these visuals feel like, it really is about a celebration of women over men in the end. And that may upset people. It is sneaky in that way. Keep in mind also, not only is his vengeance off screen, but he's run over one of the girls. The pregnant one, the one that was just about to give birth, the favored one, Splendid. The one who was in a Transformers movie. Yeah, Transformers <laughs> 3, the Megan Fox replacement will have to be replaced in future Mad Max movies because she went under a wheel. And I mean, that was a telling moment. In that, I mean, not only does she get run over and it's kind of, it's not Max's fault, but he doesn't go back for her and he doesn't fix the situation. She was dead. I mean, there was nothing to go back for but meat. No, she isn't dead. Well, no, we find out she's still alive. They ask Max, are you sure she's dead? And he's like, yeah, she's dead. We're not going back for her. <laughs> She went under a wheel, and that is what he says. You couldn't save her, though. I mean, Joe has his best doctor, and he's like, yeah, she's breathing her last breaths. You would have gone back just to watch her die. And this is my point, is that we actually do go back to watch her die, and it's one of the, it's probably the most controversial scene in a movie full of controversial images. Oh, I love that. He pulls out the butcher knife and sharpens it to do a C-section. Yeah, I mean, yeah. She, oh, she's dying, so we need to carve her up and, and look at the baby. I mean, this says, if you weren't already getting villainous off of this, this really, it will appall many people. Like I said, yes, this is an adrenaline and this is a roller coaster, but it's also a haunted house. And I do think some people are going to be terrified by these visions. And the fact that she was the one who had in her a perfect baby boy. I thought she was going into labor because at times she's grabbing her stomach. She's grunting. But what that I'm going to call him a doctor, though I'm not really <laughs> sure, maybe a butcher says is if it had gestated another month, you would have had a human. Yeah, no, it's I guess it's a tragedy for Joe. It's it was the hope that he had for his future taken from him. It gives him even more reason to keep going, because in theory, if he had just gotten her off of the truck, I think he would have let the other ones go, maybe, or at least turn back. No, he, he wanted all of it. We're going to find out another one's pregnant. I took it as all of them were pregnant in different stages. I'm sure he's trying to seed them all, so that that's not a far stretch to think that. Yeah, we're spared the uh, mechanics of how that might have happened, but... I guess none of them look pregnant. I want to just add that they, they all are very svelte and, and, you know, great figures. The baby bump was barely there. Except for Splendid, Rosie Huntington-Whitley, the one who dies, was extraordinarily pregnant. Not extraordinarily. Have you ever seen a pregnant woman? That was not extraordinary. I thought she was nine months in. I mean, they focus when they first reveal her on a wetted up giant belly. 
I would not call that belly. It's giant because she's so thin, but it's disproportionate. Yeah, but I mean, that's how Hollywood women look when pregnant. When you get a supermodel and impregnate them, yeah, that's a big belly. I shall attempt this to find out the truth of it then. (laughs) But my point is for bringing this up is, yes, it's made Joe even more reason to go after Max to the death. And it's made Max, again, look like he's not accomplishing whatever he might half be trying to do. You know, Max is only really trying to get away, and at the the right point, he will leave all of this behind. I can imagine that it is frustrating for audience members. If I had not seen that character trait in three previous movies, I probably would be angry, too. But at this point, I feel like I know Max, and I wouldn't expect anything else from him. And this is the time when Nux changes sides, too. Well, he's been hiding in the back. He failed. I I do love his failure. He gets that face-to-face with the Morton Joe, says, send me, I'll get the wives. They throw him up on the truck. He's still got that chain connected to him, so he trips and falls. And totally fails. <laughs> like within 30 seconds. Like, it's funny. So yeah, he's hiding in the back of that truck for a lot of this chase, just whimpering because he has failed his leader. He's even failed before all of this. I mean, I noticed that when we first see him, he's got withered lips. So I thought that maybe he had spray painted the chrome on his lips before and failed. He talks about three times. He did when he was going to commit suicide. We see him spray himself. Yeah, but even before then, I'm saying what I think is that, yeah, he mentions that he had three attempts to go to Valhalla, we see two of them, and I think he's just kind of a failure. He's just kind of a fuck-up. He just can't kill himself correctly. It's there in the details on his lips that even when we see him in the beginning, the reason why he's so excited to go into battle is he can correct an embarrassment from his past. But because of that last embarrassment, and what he says is because Joe saw Nux's blood bag is driving the truck that is rescuing the women... He knows he can't go back, and so he's going to help them hook the winch to the only tree in the area (laughs) and get that pulled out while the entire mob of Bullet Town and Gun Farm and the Citadel are all coming right then. It's and I love Max trying to hold the tree like he can hold the tree up. I love they don't know the name of a tree. Yeah, I love Nux. He's like that thing. Yeah, never seen a tree before. Yeah, but it's it's again another symbol of Max's uselessness. What's he going to do? Try to hold up a tree and fail. This whole area, it works though, I guess symbolically because we're going to find out later that this marsh is the green place, or used to be the green place. This is where Furiosa was born, and this is where Furiosa is going to be the most powerful she is in the entire movie. Max does nothing in a land of fertility, which the green place used to be. This is Furiosa's time. I wanted a few more seconds on this former green place. Like, we see once they get free and they're driving, they look out the window and there's these weird, I guess, humans on stills. They reminded me of those long-legged creatures from... The Dark Crystal. Don't remember what they're called. Yeah, what the fuck were those things? Were they mutated crows? Were they people on stilts? Other people. I took it the people that have adapted to living in swamps. Oh, Jesus. Although, I was happy to understand that the crows everywhere. I'm like, finally. Yeah, yeah, they tied it in from the first one, Arnie. Pay off for the birds. Yeah, (laughs) it it is Miller, finally. He set it up in the first film to pay off in the fourth movie, almost (laughs) 40 years later, that the crows are there because they can survive in an area that most can't. I'm glad you made that connection because I did think of you during that (laughs) scene. But Stuart, you're saying we wouldn't want to live here. I wish we would have spent a little more time in this bog. I wanted to see what was going on. 
you see this look on their face like they're horrified and then it just kind of goes on to the next scene. Yeah, I do feel like there are strange edits here where there were probably moments to linger. There were probably another chase and then someone somewhere said, ah, well, you don't really need this and it'll be a deleted scene on the DVD. I agree completely with this specific scene. It felt like, well, there might be hours of footage and this is what we're going to get is them just looking at it. And probably the only reason that even stayed was because later on they're going to have to say that this was the former green place. But yeah, that one shot that doesn't last long enough of weird bird-like people on stilts, damn, that's the one thing I'm like, what is that? But I agree with you, Jacob. When I walked out of this movie the first time, I felt like... I hadn't seen enough. Like, Miller didn't slow down to let me enjoy the vehicles. I barely even noticed the drums on the back of that truck the first time. But yet, I think, with the exception of this scene that feels edited out, it's there for repeat viewings. This is a movie, I felt I couldn't review it after one viewing. This, every time you watch it, up to a hundred times, you're going to see more details because it's all whizzing by at 100 kilometers per hour. Yeah, I went metric for Australia. And <laughs> you just have to see it again and again or watch the whole thing on slow-mo to take it in. And I feel like a lot of movies these days do that. I feel like a lot of them, their pace is too fast for me to totally comprehend every little detail. They usually, because they have so much exposition. This one is because it's about the world. It's literally... He just wants you to think about concepts about dystopia, about how we might live post-gas, post-water, post-technology. But it's still, I just got to say, great chases. I mean, when they go through that cavern where Furiosa had made a deal with these, like, porcupine cars and a bunch of people who look like George Clinton, <laughs> and just the chaos of multiple sides. I mean, for a little while... Furiosa and Joe are fighting on the same side to fight off the porcupine cars until they can get to deal with each other again. And then, yeah, finally through the marsh, they get to what Furiosa believes is her home, which is a naked woman in a tower screaming for help as a trap to find people they can rob. And Max calls it out. Oh, it's a trap. Don't do it. But I guess Furiosa knows the password. She can relate her lineage so they know who she is. I wonder if the radiation has affected his sexual libido. Because, yeah, normally <laughs> men make these mistakes, right? Even heroes, usually their Achilles heel is they see a beautiful naked woman and they're like, okay, I, I need a break. And uh, you would think that Max would fall for this, but Max never does. He's reduced to one instinct, survival. Not procreation, just survival. <laughs> yeah, again, makes him very hard to relate to uh, an audience. Again, we're trying to see ourselves in Max, and when we do, we realize how bad things are in his world. And none of the nudity in this film is ever sensationalized or even really shown. I mean, we see this woman's ass. She's buck naked head to toe. Miller isn't interested in that. Most nudity we get is from the women being milked in the first scene. <laughs> and this is a classic thing. I mean, we saw it in Thunderdome where what the Eden was hoped for is not going to be real. Uh, you always get that, right? I, I, get, I go back to Planet of the Apes being the most famous example of there's no getting off the planet. You know, there is no green place. Yeah, the mothers reveal that the bog was the green place, but the water was bad, so they had to flee. And now they're, yeah, just living out in the desert. They got motorcycles. Not sure where they're getting the gas. Motorcycles are more fuel efficient. I guess they're using the naked decoy to rob people's gas. It took this scene for me to get hit in the face with a sledgehammer and realize this is a movie without much plot, 
but Miller has definitely infused it with the theme. And that theme is, and I mentioned it once already, fertility. What is the MacGuffin that everyone is chasing? Pregnant women. Why are they being chased? To have babies. Here you find an old woman who has what she calls her heirlooms in a little bag, and they're seeds, and she, everywhere she goes, tries to plant them. She plants them in the skull of a dead animal that she carries with her. The soil is too toxic to allow anything to grow. But the whole thing is about femininity and Mother Earth and mothers in general. And here is where I think that is so strong nobody can miss it, is when she's talking about her seeds to a woman who I presume to be pregnant with a seed of her own. Yeah, one of the ones is in early stages of pregnancy. And I love these women, too. I just want to say it is so refreshing to see, like, 60, 70, 80-year-old women be viable, tough action stars. I mean, they hold their own. When we get into the chase here, I feel like they are just as tough as the muscle men. And it's great fun to have female warriors in this way that aren't sexualized, that are literally, it's, we're watching femininity fight back against masculinity. Yeah, and I love the reveal. You see all these motorcycles zooming around, pulling up. They all have helmets on. It's when they pull them off, and it's not like the five wives. It's not the hot 20-year-old supermodels. They're all grizzled old women, but they still look tough. I keep wondering how this is going to play to movie plexes where audiences haven't gotten this kind of movie in a long time. It's going to be a stunner not to be able to project sex and yourself into these movies, but it's healthy. I do think I'm excited to see the reaction to this movie. I love this little bit right before we get to the climax, right before they realize that the only viable place to go is a place where they know they can grow things is they're staring up into the sky and they see a satellite and they're just like, oh yeah, back in the old world, everyone had a show. It was called Now Playing. (laughs) Yes, I did think about us, of course. (laughs) And I wondered if you had a problem with one scene that I didn't necessarily like, but was perhaps the most visually stunning scene outside of the cloud storm. When Furiosa finds out most of her clan is dead, what remains is like five women, four of whom are really elderly, And the green place has turned into a toxic swamp. She's going to get her Mel Gibson moment. She's going to fall to her knees and scream up into the heavens. I I always think of you when that happens in a movie now, Stuart. Whether we're reviewing it for now playing or not. I'm like, oh, Stuart would hate this. But it's done in such a visually stunning way. She's walking across a dune. The sand, I don't know if it's CGI or just real. That's how good it is. Is wiping out her steps almost as fast as she's making them. It's a gorgeous scene, even if it's a cliched act. No, it feels like really breaking down. Oftentimes, what I reject is that this is just them getting their macho on and they're, you know, all these bad things have happened to them so that they can flex their muscles and then go beat up on people. It's, it's like spraying the chrome in your mouth or whatever. It's, it's just a contrived way of hopping them up. This feels like real desperation. When she's falling to the ground and crying, I don't feel like she's going to go back and kick some ass. I feel like this is someone that was holding on to one idea about going to home and it's been taken from her. And where else do you go? Yeah. Do you just drive 160 days out into the middle of nowhere and hope you find something? I mean, she's got no real plan anymore. Yeah. Furiosa, she doesn't do the spray paint in the mouth. She does the opposite. She does the least macho thing. She drops the robot arm as she walks out into the sand to yell, no, but what helps me is that Miller, he's cognizant of sound and music, and if you watch during a lot of the chases, they'll be beating drums and 
pumping music and then it just goes silent for a moment and then the music kicks in when the next beat comes that's something he really pays attention to and i noticed the mix it's, it's more of the music is swelling her scream is actually turned down in the mix so again it almost becomes like this great still picture that you're looking at of this person in mourning he does something with the cliches to make him more artistic and you know what i thought about that sound mix though and i did notice what you said i thought at times he'd let us hear what the characters hear like when Furiosa uses Max as a tripod and shoots a gun right next to him, I'm like, yes. that could deafen him. But what the sound mix does is gives us this intense high-pitched whine, like a whining in his ear after a really loud noise. And later in the movie, there's going to be a moment where Max gets knocked down pretty hard and the sound does cut out. And I wondered if it was us feeling Max's disorientation after the knockdown, like he couldn't hear anything. And then during the scream, I wondered if we were hearing what Furiosa might hear, where her sorrow is such that even her own scream sounds far away. I mean, I think that's the intent. And that's why the guitar is only playing when the guitarist is near. I know there's score there for mood, but by and large, even through the score, we're hearing what our point of view character be it Max or Furiosa, is hearing at that moment. It really is effective and subtle. But yeah, they want to drive out into the desert, across the salt. Max is against it. I think he's a little pessimistic in that way. I mean, he is pessimistic. He's This is where he also gives Furiosa the speech that the worst thing is hope, because if she can't fix what's broken, it'll drive her insane. You never know. You could drive 160 days over the salt, and Australia is a giant island. You might find an ocean. They could have found the Northern Tribe from the Road Warrior, the mullet boy running things. Or, like I said earlier, go to Sydney, find the Lost Kids. <laughs> you don't know what they'd find. And it could also be a death drive. But the only way to know is to go. But he goes after them after another vision of that little girl who's now using the force. She's like doing a force push with her hand at Max all the time, and he puts it up to his forehead. Yeah, it helps him block an arrow at one point, yeah. <laughs> Later in the film, yeah. But I don't know why she's using the force on him, but her mind trick gets him to go out into the salt, catch up to them, and say, to quote Iron Man from the first Avengers, I have a plan. Attack. Yeah, it's strange that his plan would be about settling down. And, and indeed, he won't. He's doing it for them. He himself will probably go across... Those salt flats for 150 days. He he is not about to find shelter and stick with it. Oh, no. He, again, the one instinct survival. There's risk in going in the salt. He's not going to find a place to settle down, but he's also not going to get so far away that he could not survive. I don't see him going there, but... My point is that he is helping them. He is doing something for them. He is... I think the reason why it is a daughter is he is thinking about a female. He is thinking about what these women could need. I don't think that he's thinking about what happens to himself. I'm not sure how much self-preservation he really has at this point. There doesn't seem to be a better plan than going back the way they came and killing people along the way <laughs> and blowing up a different overpass that didn't hold them back before. No, no, no. It was the same overpass, but they know they've cleared it out because all the cars have come through it. So they just want to block that overpass again. <laughs> They're going to unhitch the trailer and get to the Citadel first. And I guess this is where a little bit more exposition would have helped. Like, I didn't totally understand this plan. Like, they were just, it's like firsties. You didn't, no callbacks. You didn't say you're the ruler anymore. So we're taking it over. What Joe said is is that he brought every warrior after them. It was a horrible strategy, 
and that she realizes the Citadel is unguarded. And so if she can get there first, it's a fortress. And so since she has some warriors, she would be able to fend off once she got up in that big tower. So in that way, it is kind of firsties, you know, and keep in mind, the people back at the Citadel may not completely know Furiosa is their enemy. The people who ride on the truck with her are so trusting of her because she is Joe's right-hand woman that they're like, okay, we don't know what the plan is, but obviously if Furiosa is doing it, it's good. They don't realize they're betrayed until halfway through the attack. While Joe did take all his war parties and go, I'm not positive every single person back at the Citadel realizes that if Furiosa came back, they shouldn't lower the bridge. Well, they have Nux, too. That's the thought about Nux, is that having a war boy on your side will guarantee that they'll open the door. Now, usually, I'm writing furiously throughout a movie that, you know, <laughs> when the credits start, I, you know, okay, Warner Brothers, you know, like, literally, this is my first note, Warner Brothers is rusty and bloody, and I go through... <laughs> I made the same note. <laughs> I pretty much put away my pen for this climax. I'm not sure really how much we can convey the magnitude of the climax of this movie by retelling the things that happen within it. I don't feel like I could ever describe in words the experience of watching this finale. More to the point... It's irrelevant to describe that Max is on the top of a truck and then he gets hit in the forehead with a dart and might be dead, but it, he put his hand up in that reflex motion because of the little girl and all of that. Yeah, it's just important to convey that I barely blinked during these scenes because I was so riveted by the constant action. The only thing I thought was banal was the death of Nux because that is so telegraphed but he was dying anyway so yeah he he had two friends that were tumors on his shoulder that he had named and drawn happy faces on he didn't have a happy ending they do try to create a romance between him and one of the five brides capable yes capable as her name yeah but come on he can't procreate he's not going to be able to give a, a strong human baby I liked that they had that minor relationship just because it gave him a human connection before he died. Yeah, it softens us towards him. He's not so crazy. Yeah, I, I found myself wondering weirdly if he died a virgin and then wondering if war boys <laughs> raped who they pillaged. It was a strange train of thought that I don't want to go now. I think that train of thought goes with all the Mad Max films <laughs> when it comes to sexuality. I gotta say, though, there is one thing in this climax. George Miller... He said it was one of the toughest things to pull off. They didn't even know if they were going to pull it off. It's the pole cats. Yeah. Oh, God. You got these warriors on these poles that swing back and forth, and they're grabbing people. It's like they're on fishing rods, like giant fishing rods, the way they bend. It's fucking amazing. It's like Cirque du Soleil shit in an action film. It is truly, I think without exaggeration, one of the most amazing things you'll ever see. That stuff is, yes, you I recommend just to see that scene. The rest of the movie could be George Miller taking a crap on the camera lens. <laughs> and it's a recommend because this stuff is amazing. Again, I had to go back to 70s movies like Apocalypse Now and Sorcerer to think about images that created that fervor of madness the way that this does. And this is just spectacular stuff. And I'll be honest. I thought it wouldn't work. When I see the people riding in on these poles, I'm like, man, that's kind of stupid. But the way it actually works with an efficient way to kidnap people off that truck is you leap, you bungee down basically on this pole, grab them, and then you just use basically a pendulum motion to go to the car on the other side, drop them off. 
I was thinking Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yeah. only in a way that was actually exciting. My disappointment with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is it was all ballet and no real fight. Here, there's a fight to it, there's a danger to it, and it's a totally new take on Wire Foo that kept me actually in suspense at times. And again, George Miller said this: most of the CGI used in this film was used to, one, Furiosa's robot arm, but also just to erase the safety rigs that they had to use. So, yeah, these are guys, I'm sure they're bungeed up, they're not in real danger, and they erased all that digitally, but this is actual people swinging on these poles and grabbing people up. I don't even know how you go about shooting the stuff where you have to get all the cars moving and then get the film going, then action, and then like three seconds later, cut and stop it. Like it boggles the mind how you do a 130-day shoot like this where the set's almost moving the entire time. You'd have to be crazy. I mean, you'd have to be mad yourself. You have to wonder about the sanity of Miller that he would undertake this project. And you have to wonder how desperate Warner Brothers was for a new franchise to say yes to this. I mean, this looks unsafe. <laughs> All these films have been unsafe, yeah. <laughs> this is a man that has always put risk life to get madness on screen. And it is, it's, this is his masterpiece. He has never created a vision of madness better than the climax of this movie. It is phenomenal. Even with this final, Nux is going to crash the war rig to block all the other war parties into that overpass that we saw blown up earlier. Miller's like, okay, we'll just do that CGI. He's like, no, it doesn't look real enough. We could do it remote control. No, we just don't have the accuracy. We'll try miniatures. No, that doesn't look good. He's like, I guess we're going to just have to get a stuntman in there and really wreck (laughs) this rig. He's like, we get one take, so make sure it goes well. (laughs) I love his trust in his people, and apparently the crew loves him too, and it just, it shows, it shows a level of trust. Yes, this is a collaborative effort. I use Miller as a shorthand to talk about what hundreds and hundreds of people have accomplished with this climax here. It is a vision you'll never forget. I wouldn't say the crew loved him too, or at least the actors didn't. Tom Hardy came out and said he was a total dick during this film and thought it was going to be a complete fuck up. And was mean to Miller on set and said, after seeing it, yeah, I kind of owe Miller an apology. Yeah, he's changed his tune now from the things I've read. He is praising Miller. Yeah, it's going to make him whatever career he's going to have. This is probably his role at this point. But I'm sure it was hard. This movie looks like it would be excruciating to make. But you can't argue with the results here. And... Yeah, let's just rush through it. Basically, most of the women, most of the Volvalini tribe seems to die. I think the seed woman stays behind with the seeds, with Nux, that they don't make it out of this. Yeah, her throat was cut. She was dying anyway. Yeah, yeah. She has a very sad way. It's it's a peaceful. I, I love that. It's not violent, but she has this very kind of quiet death sitting there holding her seeds. They let her keep her seeds. No, no, no. 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 One of the brides grabs it before she gets onto Morton Joe's car. Oh, okay. Because there was a relationship going there. The same time the redhead was getting with Nux, the blonde, and honestly, all of these women were kind of... Which blonde? There's like three blondes. (laughs) Yeah. No, one of the blondes was dead by this point. There was another... Splendid was the pregnant one that died, and Dag was the other blonde. Okay, Dag was connecting with this old seed woman, and so Dag takes the bag so that the woman can live on through her seeds. They were heirloom seeds, and so Dag is now going to carry that on. Oh, I wish I'd seen that. That is, that's important to realize, because I was thought it was strange to be like, this woman's legacy is going to stay behind with the car pileup. All right, but it didn't. And the seeds are being taken to the Citadel, where it's never shown, but it is mentioned in throwaway dialogue. 
that they have crops there, so her seeds will grow. No, they do show the top of the citadel. It's all green on top, and at one point, Joe walks into, like, an indoor greenhouse. So they are growing things. Yeah, it's by the vault. Yeah, basically all the treasures are kept in the penthouse. But yes, Nux dies, most of the women die. Nux takes out Rictus, too. I mean, the reason Nux can't go with them, and it was his intent. Even though earlier he was a suicide guy, and he was screaming, witness me. I love that. The, the suicide moment, they scream, witness me, and all the other warboys witness. But he wanted to go with them now that he made that connection with the redhead. But because Rictus is on the truck, Nux has to die to kill Joe's most capable son. And Joe gets killed by Furiosa, who I'm not sure is going to make it. I mean, I do know that there's a sequel plan called Furiosa. But I'm not sure that Charlize enjoyed the shoot enough to come back. <laughs> and I think she could die here with Joe when she rips off the ventilator and it goes under the wheel. Huge applause by the crowd when his face gets ripped off. Yeah. Best villain death. I mean, Tina got away scot-free. And I do feel like this gives us what we want. Maybe we wanted Max to deliver it. But I like that Furiosa gets it in the end. I agree. I wish we could have seen what his face was before it got ripped off. But man, what a way to go. The way that she puts like a crowbar or some metal rod in through a chain into a wheel. It is a vehicular death for a man whose weapons was vehicular. And to rip that mask off and leave a bloody non-face. Ugh. Great stuff. But Max saves her. And this risks being cheesy. You know, Max has, I'm not saying he hasn't done anything. He's, I think he killed the people eater. He was in his car for a little yes. bit anyway. And well, by using him as a human shield, he kills the people eater. <laughs> I do love he uses the people eater's elephantitis foot to step on the gas and keep the car going. <laughs> Max is a driver and a survivor, but I've never felt like he was a, a fighter and he, he rarely seems to get the kill shot. He rarely seems to ever participate in anything. So it's risky that they now allow him to have this moment where he's going to tell Furiosa his name. It's the sweetest puncturing of a lung I've ever seen, but <laughs> he's going to give her an airway. For me, okay, he punctures a lung, not a big deal. We're, yeah, where it borders on losing uh, those that want a more grizzled movie is earlier, she's like, what's your name? And he refuses to tell her. And now he's like, Max, my name is Max. Like, it's a little over the top, but you know what? This whole entire film is over the top. Well, they fix it by having him not stay. I think that when I realized she's going to live and they get back and they claim the Citadel, I was just like, wow, this, I might not actually be cool with what I've said I've wanted all along, which is Max <laughs> to find a home. I'm like, I may not like this, actually. They may be showing me. I hated it when he thought he was going to settle down with the kids in that one valley. I always thought I was wanted it for him, but I was happy that he gives just that knowing look to her as she's standing the new, you know, Immortem or, or whatever she's going to be to these people. He's slinking away. Yeah, because Immortem Joe has been ripped to pieces. I love that moment. They're like, well, what are you guys doing here? And they unveil Joe's dead body and you see the crowds just like swarm and tear him apart. I wish it had been more gory, honestly. I, I mean, this film has not shied away from violence. If you're no. going to tear apart a recent corpse, it's going to get juicy down there. I wish that it had gone that way. But even though he's making exploitation films, I feel like Miller uses conventions but shies away from the true exploitive moments. There's no titty shots. There's no seeing the intestines ripped out of a body. It's a weird kind of restraint that he shows at the last seconds. I think Furiosa survived. I mean, it paid off. 
Max having that blood transfusion with Nux earlier. He's got the needle and gives her the blood that will save her life. Yeah, I noticed he had that tubing strapped to his shoulder, like for most of the film. I'm like, oh, when's that going to come back? Because they're saving that for a reason. Yeah, O negative, that's universal, so he can donate to anyone. And that's probably why he was a blood bag to begin with, right? Is that anyone could hook up to him. But it was a nice way of thinking about him and her connecting. It was all I wanted him to do. I didn't want him to kiss her or live with her, or be seen even in the last shot standing next to her. It's right for this character, I now realize. As long as George Miller is behind the camera, Max should never commit to any place that he visits. More, even if somebody else is behind the camera, he shouldn't, because it just makes him less unique. Again, I like him as this post-apocalyptic Lone Ranger, who all he's going to do is write one wrong per movie. He's going to find a despotic regime and overthrow one per film. Arnie, George Miller has created westerns that you actually like. He's using that western formula, but it's in the post-apocalypse, and it's cars and guns and exciting. Yeah, high-octane fun. I mean, and he's created a plotless movie I enjoyed. I, I am shocked. I did wonder about that. Yeah. So it's pretty clear to me, but let's go through the motions. <laughs> Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Mad Max Fury Road? Jacob. Being the Mad Max fan and having watched those films growing up with them, like this one, this is the best one. I'm just going to say that right there. This is the best Mad Max film. Just, But it's the artistry that George Miller brings to this. Like He is someone that thinks about explosions and thinks about how to tell a story in a different way. How can we tell an action story? without exposition? How can we have the picture continually moving and just come up with crazy ideas and still have a story, have something that's adrenalized, have something that is, I'm going to say it, a work of art. My favorite thing, and I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to things like Robocop and exploitation films, because the best ones are, they're lowbrow films where they have this injection of highbrowness put into it. And I, I just love that mixture that you could take something gritty and bloody and dark and rise it up to another level. And George Miller has done it better than any of his previous Mad Max films with Fury Road. I don't know how audiences that haven't grown up with these films, have, haven't grown up with, like you said, Stuart, 70s gritty films. I don't know how they're going to take this. They're, they're used to the Expendables 2, which the camera lingers on old action stars, Arnold and Chuck Norris shooting guns. We don't even see who they're shooting. It's just we're supposed to get a thrill out of seeing these old guys shoot a gun. No, we got to raise our standards for action films. And Fury Road plants its flag down and says, this is how it should be. I, I cannot recommend this one strong enough. I'm going to go see it again after this for dead recording here. This is the best Mad Max film for me. Do you have to see the other ones to get this? No, I still think you should watch those other ones, but this one does stand alone. Otherwise, I still, that first one, as dirty and cheap and as rough as it is, I still love, the, it's my favorite villain with Toe Cutter there. I, I love the vision there. Then I go with Road Warrior and then Beyond Thunderdome. I do love Tina Turner in that film and I love Bartertown, but it, it loses its way in the middle there. And I started this retrospective off saying this may be my most favorite trilogy, even more than Star Wars. Well, Star Wars, the original trilogy could still be my favorite trilogy because this is my favorite quadrilogy now. So strong, strong recommend for Fury Road. Stuart. Yeah, I had to wonder, Jacob, with the credits rolled, I'm just like, is this Jacob's favorite movie of all time? Like, I just thought of you and like, he could love this movie more than any. It may be a top 10. Yeah, I, I believe they've done it. And they've done it for me, too. I've been saying this whole Mad Max retrospective, 
I'm lukewarm, I like it, but I just feel like I don't love it. And they'd finally deliver. And what a delivery. I, I'm so proud, really, of everyone for allowing this movie to be. You know, for giving a 70-year-old man the chance to finish a vision that the world was telling him time and again with the production going into turnabout. Don't make this. Don't do it. It's over. You're over the hill. Nope. He's not over the hill. He's made his best film that he's ever made. And it's a phenomenal vision that is, yes, it blows the standards away for action movies. It reminds me that this can happen again. That, you know, I'm often labeled the guy that doesn't like action movies, largely because I get tired of the fantasy of action movies. The unrealistic expectation that action movies are just about getting you high. This is a movie that indulges a vision. And like Terry Gilliam movies or David Lynch's Dune, it goes somewhere perverse. And it uses the octane of action to make that perversity even more powerful. I love movies that are adrenalized. I just don't like self-involved fantasies. And when I look at something like Fast and the Furious, I just feel like that's a soap opera. This is a work of art. And it will challenge you. It will provoke you. It's obviously my favorite in the series. It's a high recommend. Ranking the other ones, nothing comes close. Really, nothing comes close. The second closest is Road Warrior. Road Warrior is like the cheap version of this movie. And then I would probably go Thunderdome and then the original Max. But all of them are recommend and a very good quadrilogy. I wouldn't call it my favorite. I still, Aliens, you know, that's going to be my quadrilogy. But yeah, a great franchise. This new movie has elevated the whole thing. Aliens isn't a quadrilogy. There's Prometheus. It's a five-parter. No, there's not. Not at all. <laughs> Different name. <laughs> Doesn't exist, and neither do those Predator things either. <laughs> well, this is obviously a recommend from me as well, but I feel like the effusive praise we've given this film, deservedly so, I have a couple problems with it that I'll just use this summation to point out, and that is the lack of character development, the lack of plot. I mean, I almost feel bad putting the film up against that standard, though, because it's entirely beyond the intent. It's not like George Miller went out and said, here's the character story I'm going to tell and failed to make good characters out of it. He just cared so little about it. He made the film he wants to make, and it is a work of art. But... While I can appreciate it as that work of art, and truthfully, perhaps the best action I've ever seen in a movie, and there's two hours of it, and there's never a scene where I go, well, that didn't measure up. It just keeps building and building, and when I think it can't get any better, in comes the pole, guys. So that is incredible, but I've said it many times in the history of Now Playing, for a fight to mean something, I need to care about the characters in the fight. No matter how well it's filmed, no matter how inventive it is, if I am not connected to the characters, then I don't care. And so Miller has brought me the closest to caring with a bunch of stock characters that I only have presumed empathy with because of the extremeness of their bad circumstances. But no, I don't care about these characters. When the one pregnant woman dies, I'm a little sad because I kind of feel Max killed her because he gave her the bullet wound that caused her to slip in the blood. I feel like it's on him. But I don't miss her as a character. She was barely distinct enough from the others 
other than she had a few more lines of dialogue, she was Joe's favorite. She stood out among them as the biggest belly. But no, I'm not connected to these characters. And so while I'm enjoying the visuals and the action, I'm enjoying it like it's under a microscope for me. Like it's a bug under a microscope that I'm studying clinically versus rooting in my seat. Yeah, that's awesome, which I would be if I connected with the characters. And so it's a strong recommend. And I'm going to say something that I don't say. See it in theaters. I hate the type of movie review that says, eh, catch this one on DVD as a mediocre recommend. I'm like, your time is your time. Where you spend your time is what should make a recommend. So in the early days of now playing, I banned see it on DVD as a phrase. This one, get your ass to theaters and see it in 3D if you can. Yeah, I'm going to try to find an IMAX theater to see that for my second viewing. Yeah, do that. Yeah, that was my question is I saw this 2D, so 3D is making it even more enhanced. I didn't see the 2D version, so I can't compare. Though on my second viewing, I did the one-eye closed test sometimes. But there are times when stuff flies in your face there's a one moment where it's almost like it bleeds off the edge of the screen which is the winch scene the winch is coming out into the audience i mean by and large it just adds depth but when you're shooting the landscapes with these wide angles i mean miller he's often in the action but he also cuts far away from the action like a helicopter shot or something a crane shot of the action happening in the distance and to feel that distance in the depth If it's not one of the best 2D conversion jobs I've seen, it's the one that uses it the wisest. So yeah, I'd say see it in 3D, see it on a big screen with the bass going, you know, the subwoofers that I don't care what kind of home theater you have, it's not going to be as good as an IMAX. See this in the best format you can, but see it. Even if you have to wait for Netflix because you have a young baby and can't get out, see this movie. But it's not my favorite Mad Max film because it just doesn't have the characters. So my ranking, Road Warrior is still number one. Whoa, that's controversial, I gotta say. Road Warrior had better characters? Road Warrior had better characters. I enjoyed the plight of the city more. I felt the humongous was about as well-developed as Joe. I liked Max's turn. I liked the truck chases. I love the end chase of the Road Warrior. What I can say is like this entire movie is like if Miller remade the Road Warrior, but it's just the chase at the end down to being a tanker that's being chased. So yeah, I, the Road Warrior is still my jam. I love the gyro captain. I love the snake pit. It's just that film is the one that makes Mad Max a man for me, that makes him a character most. I I mean, other than the first film, but I just have problems with the first film. This is a very close second, though. This is really a close, close second to The Road Warrior. The first one's going to be number three, and I so was close to a not recommend on Thunderdome, so that's lowest on the list. But shit, How many series? Did we give 12 recommends out of 12 to Mad Max? We did. How has that ever happened? How many times, especially a series that goes as long as four parts, a couple of duologies maybe, but four parts, three recommends per movie. I mean, that is mad in and of itself. It does feel good after so many reboots and sequels that we've done. I mean, that is the now playing model. Re-exists. The current version of now playing is because of reboots and sequels. 
And it often seems like those are the ones we're dreading the most is the theatrical release. I, I got to say, I don't think I've been this excited for a film. I went and looked back just at the ones we've reviewed on now playing. Maybe Scott Pilgrim, which was 2010, like where I was just hyped for a film to come out. Not before I had even seen it. And, and so, yeah, that is a miracle that we have had a reboot slash sequel that, well, two out of three of us is the best one. For you, it's almost tied with Road Warrior. Yeah. yeah we all agree it's phenomenal. I, I'm curious. I'm most curious to see what American audiences are going to make with this, because I don't think Mad Max ever had the stature he did in Europe and Australia. And I think for a lot of people, this will be a new character. It'll be a new way to think about action movies. You're right. You don't pump your fist and go, yeah, at the end of this. You're bowled over. It's a different kind of experience with adrenaline. And I don't think American audiences fed on a diet of, of Hollywood films have been prepared properly for this meal. I hope they love it. I do too. I think it's going to be fine. It's no Pitch Perfect 2. It's not going to be that, but... Yeah, I can't believe that. But yes, Pitch Perfect 2 is going to win the weekend here in America. But... I think that the audiences who can get sold on it, and how do you sell this movie? The trailers have done the best job they can, but anyone who goes, I think, will enjoy it. The key is getting them in the seats. I think that while there are a fringe element who are complaining about the message of this film, I don't think it's so overt as to be able to wreck the average person's enjoyment of it, you know? It's there if you look for it. It's an action film if you don't. Right, yeah, I, I agree. If you just want to be wild and thrilled and thrown around, in that way, it is a roller coaster. But I just, wow, yeah, it'll take people to places that are going to make them feel uncomfortable. And I, I look forward to seeing the fallout of this movie. I hope it gets a sequel. I know it's getting a video game. I know that there's been this almost as much anticipation about creating the video game version of this that it's taken nearly as long to design. That's coming out in September. For me, I'm not a gamer, so that's not where I'm going to get thrills. I hope I get another one. But if we don't, if this is the end, and it might be for Miller... It's enough. I mean, honestly, to end on this high note, I'm not going to be sad if we don't get a sequel, even though, of course, I'd love to see one. Yeah, I'm good with that. Here, here. If this is the last one, go out on a high note. Don't water it down. And it actually might happen. Like you said, it's not going to win the weekend in America. I feel like this film is one that's going to grow in esteem, though, kind of like the Dread movie that came out. It's going to be one that people discover too late. It is the ultimate cult movie, right? Like, everyone will love this movie when they see it, but it will take them years, maybe, to finally get around to it. Well, good. Maybe I'll get a write about it and are now playing underrated book volume two. <laughs> and I want to hear what our listeners have to say about it. I know so many people, it's astounding to me, especially on Twitter, that like from Friday through Monday, people are tweeting to us that they're watching whatever we're reviewing that Tuesday, and it gets intense with the weekend of release. I know we have a listener contingency that goes to movies that we review that they might not have otherwise while in theaters. So come to our forums. I mean, Facebook's great for quick chats, but if you have in-depth thoughts, come to our forums and let us know what you thought, even if you hated this film. I'd love to hear from somebody who's hated it. God knows nobody's writing that other than one guy. One critic that brought it down to 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. So I'd like to hear everyone's reactions to this film. More than a discussion of our own review, I'd like to hear you talk about this film in our forums. So come on over to the forums. There's a link from nowplayingpodcast.com and tell us what you thought of Mad Max Fury Road. 
and this entire series of films. I'd really just enjoy hearing you engage on that. And I'd really enjoy hearing you engage on Westworld and Future World, <laughs> because that means you're supporting our show. That's true. And uh, it is the warm-up to Jurassic World, a movie that I think a lot of people want to see. They probably don't know about Westworld and Future World, but Michael Crichton wrote both. He wrote the novel for Jurassic Park. He wrote the novel for Lost World. He was a consultant on the movie. But a decade prior to that, he was thinking about theme parks and technology going wrong in entertainment and create an environment that is going to be an HBO show. Everyone will know about Westworld when HBO releases a new TV show with Anthony Hopkins and Ed Harris and Thandie Newton and a whole big cast. But uh, before that show comes out, you should catch up and hear our reviews of the original Westworld and Future World, theme parks where robots go rogue. Yeah, these podcasts may not be available by the time HBO gets around to airing the shows, given that they haven't announced a date. They probably won't be available when they air the shows. And Mike K on Twitter said that our review of Westworld had him in tears 15 minutes in. His sides were hurting. So... Robot fucking people. Robot fucking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you don't know the movie, yes, you can do anything you want with the robots when you go to the world. And yeah, there are interesting films to discuss, and Future World is out this Friday. Yes, and more interested than the films to discuss is the psychoanalysis of Jacobs and my psyche <laughs> when we start talking about robot slaves. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So much to delve into in these two movies you haven't heard of, and that's a gold-level donation of $25 or more, which also gets you the Indiana Jones series, which we've reviewed all three movies in. Four, Arnie, four. There's four. Yes. <laughs> hey, if Stuart can deny Prometheus, I can deny Crystal Skull. <laughs> Oh, you can, but can you deny Goonies? That's also going to be in that. We haven't released that show, but the four Indiana Jones are available right now. If you were to donate, go to our webpage, nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, donate the $25. You will get Westworld, four Indiana Jones movies, and this Friday, Future World. At the end of summer, you'll get Goonies. And of course, in between Jurassic Park, there are four films in that as well. And opening this Friday is the new Poltergeist. And if you want to donate at the platinum level, $35 or more, you will get immediately the three Poltergeist reviews we did way back in 2011. They're a little bit rougher technically, but I think we had three great discussions that I stand by completely the content. And then... Pretty soon, we're going to be recording it on Memorial Day, you'll get our review of the fourth Poltergeist film. So you get the Indiana Jones series, the Westworld Future World, the Jurassic Park series, the Poltergeist series, and a one-off review of Goonies for a platinum-level donation of $35 or more. We know it's a lot of money, but we are trying to provide you with hours and hours of content and 15 shows. And it's your money that keep this show going. I again had to upgrade our servers to a private server. Our show for Beyond Thunderdome was number three on iTunes and took down the servers a little bit, let alone what Avengers did to us. It is expensive to have an audience as great as you and as hungry as you guys for our reviews. We love you as listeners. It takes us money to feed you these shows. So your support keeps our servers online. So thank you for your support. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, 
May we ride eternal, shiny and chrome. There has been too much violence, too much pain. Just walk away, and I spare you lives. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Mad Max Movie Retrospective. Where is she taking them? I want them back! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mad Max review, culminating with the review of the new film, Mad Max Fury Road. We're going to stay here. And we're going to live a long time. And we're going to be thankful. Right? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Blade Runner, Minority Report, the RoboCop series, and more. Want to get through this? Let's go! You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. This is my family. I'm not going to leave these people. I'm staying. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. Well, there was despair. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. I got skills I can trade them. Sorry the brothel's full. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Anything you say, anything I say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, Alex, and Arnie. After my armpits and blood and shit. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth. The movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. What's a little fallout, huh? Have a nice day! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You've seen it, you've heard it, and you're still asking questions. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Okay, but what does that mean? And so began the journey north to safety, to our place in the sun. We traveled far beyond the reach of men and machines. And the road warrior, that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. where he's got, like, babes in a vault and babies floating in pools of water, and every now and then, I get a plane that means I have to stop talking. (laughs) Okay, the baby boom generation, at least they created George Miller. At least, like, here is an old guy (laughs) that is doing something amazing. World War II, yeah, that's nothing. That's the greatest generation. That's before him. Oh, you're right, you're right. Uh, Yeah, what did they do? (laughs) Yeah.
yeah, I guess not much. Yeah, they they produced a bunch of hippie music, but not George Miller. Like, yeah, good rock music. I, I give him that. I guess, and a booming American economy. But <laughs> yeah, that was a lot based because of what happened in World War II. Yeah, yeah. Let's not go there. But yes, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to get into this. But what I'm saying is, <laughs> what Joe said, and I missed this the first time because I had to use the bathroom. But. <laughs> <laughs> Damn soda machine. I may have missed it because this is a movie full of Banes and everyone's hard to understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't believe that. But yes, Pitch Perfect 2 is going to win the weekend here in America. Yeah, but I guess a good weekend to be a woman, right? That is true. You got an action film or a uh, musical, depending whatever you like. And Australian. I believe uh, one of those singers. Oh, that's right. Rebel Wilson is Australian. Yes. Yeah, from Ghost Rider, no less. What? Uh, I don't remember her in that. (laughs) I don't remember anything about that. (laughs) I just figured I started with a Ghost Rider reference. I'll end with a Ghost Rider reference. A good bookend. (laughs) This movie's got Marvel all over it. It's got three X-Men in it. (laughs) That's true. This is why I haven't seen Nicholas Holt in anything. He's been trapped in Africa since 2012 doing reshoots. (laughs) You can check out Warm Bodies. He was good in that as a zombie. (laughs) So thank you for your support. And just before we end... A public service announcement that has nothing to do with anything. Faith No More's first album in 20 years, Soul Invictus, came out today, too. Go get that. It has a guitarist. This movie has a guitarist. That's all the tie I need to promote Faith No More. Okay. (laughs) 